Father, search our hearts. By your Spirit, Father, look into each of us. Examine us, Father. And I pray, Father, you would bring to mind those aspects of our life, of our thoughts and our words and our actions that should be on the foremost parts of our mind this morning because, Father, you intend to contend with them. I pray, Father, that your word this morning would be that instrument that as we think through the words and the, and the teaching in Scripture this morning, that we would not be thinking about it strictly as something to know and understand, but, Father, we would be examining ourselves in light of it. So bring to mind, Father, right now those things you would have us deal with in our life. Have them set before us so that as you address them in your word, Father, we are attentive to how they impact us and not just how they should impact our neighbor or our spouse. Father, help us to be more Christ-like. To know and to not act, Father, is such a waste of faith and of an opportunity. So pray, I pray, Father, that we would be ready this morning to act and to do according to your word. And, Father, I pray we would also have, by your Spirit's influence in our lives, we would have a heart, Father, to be useful in faith, a heart, Father, to reach others for the sake of the gospel, a heart, Father, to, to teach and to disciple and to care for those in the body of Christ. We've heard in our prayer life already this morning, Father, so many in this fellowship who have needs and have concerns. And they bring them here because they trust, Father, that the prayers of righteous men and women can do many good things. But, Father, let us not simply be those who pray and then walk away. Let us also be men and women who are prepared to lend a hand and support and guide and help in ways both big and small. We pray all these things, Father, because James has brought them to our mind over the past weeks, and we are determined, Father, to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. So we ask, Father, this morning would be a furthering of the doing and not merely of the hearing. Thank you, Father, for this morning, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may remember in James 1, at a point at the end of that chapter, James taught us an important principle for proper Christian living. The book's been filled with these principles, but there was one in particular back in verse 21 of chapter 1. And James said we needed to put all manner of filthiness and wickedness aside. And then he said, in place of that, receive the word of God, which he said is able to save our souls. And when we looked at it back in chapter 1, we clarified that James was talking here about the sanctifying sense of saving, the, the sense of us being saved from the consequences of our sinful choices and saved really from a life that's dependent on those sinful choices. In that sense, saving our souls. Because as a believer, we have already seen the saving of our soul from an eternal point of view. Now the issue and the issue throughout the book of James is what are you doing with that faith? And back in chapter one, he said this sanctifying process, this process of becoming more Christ-like in our living and in our choices was going to come about because we would receive the word of God in humility. Humility being an important quality to the way we hear. Hearing the teaching of God's word was this recipe, this simple answer to the problem of how do I become more Christ-like. Then he goes on in that chapter to say that if we're merely hearers of the word, not doers, then we deceive ourselves into thinking we are religious. By merely the fact that we sit and listen to some guy like me drone on for 45 minutes out of God's word, but not do anything with it. Then in verse 26, this is again at the end of chapter 1, he offers a gold standard of sorts for measuring whether or not 
We are truly putting the word into practice. If you want to know, are you the kind of person who's doing what James is asking? He gives the gold standard, if you remember. And that gold standard was, if we do not learn to bridle our tongue, to control it, in other words, to control that part of our life, then he says our religion is worthless. By religion, he's referring back here to this principle or this practice of being in church, for example, or listening to God's word, of praying, of doing all these things, these churchy things. But when it comes down to really knowing, is it doing any good? Ask yourself, is it, is it helping you control your tongue? And his point was, if you can't manage that, then your religion, all this stuff we may be doing, is really worthless. We're not taking it to heart. Because it's not arriving at sanctification. It's ultimately not arriving at a life that is steadily becoming more Christ-like or holy. And that is of no value or no worth, which is a large part of what he covered in chapter 2. That kind of outward religious practice that doesn't lead to any inward spiritual conforming to Christ is a life that doesn't profit. Doesn't profit us in the sense of the eternal rewards we may be losing. Doesn't profit our neighbors because we're not helping anybody. And it doesn't profit God because it brings him no glory. So that was, in a sense, how we moved from the end of chapter 1 through chapter 2. And then into chapter 3 today, we actually come back to this theme. James brings us back again into this central theme. And if you remember the end of chapter 2 specifically, he finished with this reminder that our life's goal must be to declare our faith publicly by doing works that faith requires. That when we do good works, in a sense, we're declaring our faith to people. We declare ourselves to be righteous by our works. We don't make ourselves righteous by our works, but we are declaring it. We are publicly showing it. Works are faith on display. And for James, the words we use when we speak are a particularly good indicator of spiritual maturity. So he spends chapter 3 focusing on speech, on this central principle that says, if you really want to know whether all the practicing of religion is doing you any good, start by inspecting your speech patterns, and you'll have a pretty good measure of whether or not you are moving towards spiritual maturity or not. So let's look at James chapter 3 with that background and see what he says. 3 verse 1, where we begin, James says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Well, these opening verses set the tone here for the chapter. But they raise this interesting point in verse 1 that deserves its own moment as we go through the text. He begins with this warning. He says, let not many of you become teachers. Or become a teacher. Because, he says, teachers incur a stricter judgment, and we all stumble in many ways. The sense there in the Greek of, let not many of you become teachers, if you look at that and parse it out in the Greek, it has a sense of, don't press yourself upon a teaching role. Another way to say it might be, don't pursue it as if it is an opportunity to be gained. And his argument for why we should not seek the role in in two strong a sense, is because we all sin. Verse 2, he says, we all stumble in many ways. It's just a fact of life. We are, by nature, men and women who sin. And he says, because that is of our nature right now, don't go running after a teaching role, because, he says, teachers incur a stricter judgment. The reality is that failing to handle the word of God rightly is a particularly damaging sin within the body of Christ, because without even an explanation, you understand why. A teacher who sins... Through poor teaching, which is a form of speech, poor speech, 
stands to receive a harsher judgment when he faces Christ on his judgment day because of the consequential influences that poor teaching bring to the body of Christ. They not only are reflecting poorly on the teacher, but clearly they can work into the lives of those who hear the teaching and create more sin there, more trouble there. And so the teacher is graded by a tougher standard. And James in verse 2 is going to start to broaden the discussion away from teachers and bring it to the rest of us. But before we go with him into that broadening, I want to stay just on the point of teachers for a moment because this statement, verse 1, by itself, it's difficult for some people to understand how to put this into practice. What is he actually asking for us to do or not do? For example, is he trying to discourage us from teaching God's word? Is he trying to say it's a bad thing to be a teacher or that we shouldn't want to know how to teach the Bible? Well, it's not that he doesn't want us to have teachers, obviously. What he wants, though, is for us to have teachers who are gifted and called by the Spirit to be teachers, rather than those who have made it their own desire to have that role and therefore are operating not in the spirit when they take the role, but in the flesh, when they operate in their own strength. First, let's remember, James is Jewish, right? And the letter itself is written to a largely Jewish audience, the Jewish Christians of the first century church. And in Jewish culture, a teacher was an important authority figure. It wasn't simply someone who delivered knowledge. This person, by by the very fact that they had a teaching role, was also a leader, Remember, Jesus himself was called rabbi, and a rabbi in the Jewish context was a a term of of authority and power and respect. And it's in that context I think James is speaking. He's speaking here about leaders in the church who express their leadership primarily through a teaching role of one kind or another. And by teaching, I mean someone, and this is where I think you have to be very clear in understanding what James is proposing, someone who establishes the normative interpretation of Scripture for the sake of some group of people. By normative, it's a fancy word for what is considered the standard. So if somebody in a group of believers wants to know what does verse XYZ mean, they should have an authority within the church, within that body, whose responsibility it is to interpret the scriptures and establish what is the normative or proper regular interpretation of that of that verse. So that when there are disputes in the church, there is a leadership component that makes clear what the right view should be within that body. These are the roles that he is particularly concerned about. This would include people like pastors, teaching pastors, uh, Bible study leaders, elders, people who have a role within the church to lead and principally to lead through the normative interpretation of Scripture. This might also include women, by the way, if they have a similar role when they're teaching to other women in the church or to children even. Now, don't press yourself into one of these roles unless, I would argue, you're specifically gifted and called into that role. Because if you seek it out of your fleshly desires, other than for reasons God might intend, you are placing yourself in jeopardy. We are putting ourselves in a position where we have something at risk come our judgment day. If somebody takes on the teaching role that they want, without the gifting and the calling of God to do it, then when they actually go to exercise in that role, as James points out, they're going to stumble. We all stumble in many ways. It's inevitable that their sin will express itself, will manifest itself. And if somebody is not able to bridle their tongue, then that is going to be a particularly dangerous situation for someone who is in a teaching role absent the calling and the gifting of the Spirit. They're setting themselves up for failure because inevitably their sin nature will come to the foreground and show itself in the form of bad teaching, inappropriate teaching. And they are now putting themselves in jeopardy at the judgment moment. Remember, we're never talking in James about a jeopardy of salvation. That's not the issue in James at all. The issue in James is what happens to believers who do not please their Lord in a life of good works. Now, 
What about the person who, who knows they don't have the gift to teach per se? They don't believe that is their spiritual gifting. But they do feel some leading to conduct a Bible study group or to lead a Sunday school class or to teach their neighbor or their children even. Is James suggesting that these people are just to refrain entirely from one of those opportunities just because they don't feel compelled to be a pastor or an elder or some other teaching leader? In light of James's teaching, I think we can safely conclude that if someone is absent a teaching gift, nonetheless, they can still be a, a leader in one of those other group settings, a, a Bible study, a Sunday school, etc. But here's the caveat. That person should never take it upon themselves to interpret Scripture when they teach, because to the extent they're working outside their gift, they're back to the problem James suggests, that they're, they're going to be incurring a stricter judgment and they're putting themselves at risk. Rather, the leader would present teaching from some kind of curriculum or from some kind of, of prepared material that someone who has a teaching gift has vetted or at least helped prepare. They have some cover, in other words. They have somewhere in the body of Christ that they can turn to and say, I know that what I'm presenting here is something that is grounded in Scripture. Now, that leader is still going to be accountable for what they say, just as we all are in the body of faith. But the stricter judgment he mentions here, I would argue, would not be a concern since they're not endeavoring to take on a role they don't have spiritually. And then finally, and I think this is incredibly important to point out for fear that I would leave you with the wrong impression. All Christians, all Christians are given the ability by the Spirit to read and understand Scripture. So I am not proposing that only certain people are gifted to read and interpret Scripture, and that we are dependent on them to tell us what the Bible means. That is the heresy of Rome that ultimately led to the Reformation. I would never propose that. We are a kingdom of priests, the Bible says. As believers, we all have equal access to the Spirit and to the throne of God. We all have an equal opportunity to know and understand God's Word with or without teachers in our life. But Paul also tells us in Ephesians that we are given teachers, among other things, so that he might build up the body and equip them for the work of ministry. So it's also clear that teachers play a special role, one that God has anointed and appointed to us, and we need to avail ourselves of their skills. That's why they're in the body of Christ. And we cannot assume, because of what we might desire personally, that we automatically have the same skill or the same ability to interpret Scripture as someone else who may have been gifted to do it to a higher degree. That doesn't negate our own ability to seek Scripture and to understand it. It doesn't mean that we have to go through somebody else to understand it. But it does suggest that our learning might be assisted through somebody else. We might come to the understanding faster. We might come to a deeper understanding. God may use them to help us in that regard. I just don't want to leave anybody here the impression that somehow we've got to stop reading the Bible for ourselves and we have to depend on somebody else. That's never the intent of Scripture. What James is worried about is the unbridled tongue, the person who is not disciplined and mature enough to handle the role and then seeks it for themselves to their own condemnation. I was exactly that person. I can remember distinctly as a new believer feeling a call to teach. I just felt God pulling me into that role. What I lacked, though, was the knowledge of Scripture and, unfortunately, the self-discipline, the self-control of spiritual maturity. And that's not unusual for a new believer, right? That's where we all start. But my impatience meant that I was putting myself or trying to put myself in a role to teach people well before I really had the skill or the, the training to do it, certainly before God was ready for me to do it. And by God's grace, he rarely gave me the opportunity. In fact, he almost never gave me the opportunity. It seemed like any time I tried to set up a class or be a part of something, it would fall through. Or no one would show up. You know, how, often do you, how long do you have to see that happening before you realize, okay, maybe I'm not supposed to be doing this yet, right? 
in looking back on it, it I recognize that God is capable of, of restraining us from ourselves, if that's what's required. And in doing so, it was tremendous grace for me, right? Because I'm guilty, perhaps, of James chapter 3, verse 1, if I had gone forth into those moments and taught. And I look back on some of the things I was preparing to teach, the, the content of what I was preparing to teach, things I knew nothing about, that if I had taught them, I would have been teaching very wrongly out of Scripture. I believed you could lose your salvation, and I'm preparing to teach out of the Bible that heresy because of a failure to really understand the, the totality of Scripture. Thank the Lord he didn't let me teach it. He withheld my ability. I didn't know it at the time, but that's what he was doing. I was just frustrated no one was showing up. God was protecting them. So James's concern here is broader than just teachers, but he's using that as an example to open the discussion about the importance of maturing and in particular, maturing in our speech so that we would not convict ourselves, we would rather be a blessing in the way we use our speech. And it's an important characteristic. It's one he picks first because, as he'll point out here in chapter 3, it is indicative of spiritual maturity overall. He's talking about self-control. He's talking about our ability to manifest spiritual maturity because one of the most important works we can do in faith is the work of conforming our behavior to the commandments of Scripture. The parable that Jesus teaches about taking the log out of your own eye before you take the splinter out of someone else's, that is at the core of this discussion in James. This principle that says, if you want to start doing good works to, to declare your faith, the most important work you can do is in yourself. The work of sanctification, of, of making yourself look more Christ-like in your living. And in chapter 1, remember that the best test of spiritual maturity is how well we control our tongue. Well, now in chapter 3... The man who is able to do that is perfect, as he said in verse 2. Now, by perfect, the word in the Greek is teleos, which literally means to have brought something to an end or to have been brought to completion. Do you want to know when you've arrived at spiritual maturity? He says the standard is someone who can control their tongue. Would seem like an easy thing, right? You might think he might have mentioned other things. But then he goes to explain this biblical principle that our degree of spiritual maturity is most readily shown in our speech patterns. If our speech is godly and pleasing to the Lord in all respects, then we could fairly judge ourselves to have reached spiritual maturity. But folks, it's a deceptively difficult standard. It seems easy, or perhaps to some of us it does anyway, but it's not. In that phrase, speech, he is wrapping together lying. Have you fully stopped lying in all contexts? Spoken, written, or otherwise? Gossiping? Are we absolutely confident we never share an unflattering word about somebody else? Boasting? Can we say with definitive assurance that we never pridefully speak of ourselves on any level? Slandering? Speaking ill about somebody else? Cursing? Putting aside all manner of filthy speech? Until we have put all of those things away entirely, we still have work to do. And that's why he gives a warning to those who would teach, because if you're not a mature believer with a spiritual gift to teach, then you're likely to have your teaching laced with one or another of these speaking sins. You're going to use your teaching opportunities to boast, for example. Have you seen men who make a pe preaching out of boasting about themselves? Or lying? Or gossiping about others? Or slandering others? I mean, if that's the standard of what it means to be a mature believer, you can expect that if you're not mature and you teach, you're going to see some of those things creep into your teaching, and that's going to be leading you to a stricter judgment. So, he now is going to establish 
the truth around this statement by giving a couple of analogies and some examples, but it's really helpful to see the depth of these analogies to really take home from today an appreciation for how strongly this principle applies to us, how much we can, in fact, measure our maturity by our speech. Look in chapter 3, verse 3. He says, as his first example, Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. First, we take the horse. Now, this is an easy one, as I said. It's easy to understand. You've got a horse as a large animal, and yet the rider is able to make that horse do anything he wants. A skilled rider can do virtually anything they want with that horse, only by controlling a small piece of metal that sits right above the tongue of the horse. That's it. And we may know that instinctively. It's not news to any of us. But if you really stop and think about it for a minute, it's really quite remarkable when you get down to it. Why is that big animal going to do everything we ask it to do simply because you're controlling what's in its mouth? James wants to build off of that principle a little to tell you this is how it works for us. When we yield to the spirit's controlling influence in our speech, then we will also have yielded to him in all other areas of our life, just like that horse. If the horse's rider is equivalent to the spirit and we are the horse, James is proposing that the moment we yield to the spirit and give over to him our speech, let him control it, let him guide us, convict us where we're wrong and show us the truth out of the word, we will necessarily have given over a lot of other things in our life already. It's as if James is saying that the last thing humans tend to give to the spirit is our speech. Perhaps because it's so closely associated with our thinking and our motivations. You remember Jesus in the Gospels in Matthew 15, uh, verse 18. He says, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses and slanders. Jesus made the same principle. He said, it's really what comes out of you that defiles you, not what goes into you. And what comes out of your mouth is reflective of what's in your heart. And a person who is cursing all the time, or a person who can't stop lying, or a person who speaks ill about everyone who comes to mind, that is someone who is saying an awful lot more about themselves than they're saying about anyone else. And they can be Christians. Christians can do those things, unfortunately. But what they're showing is a degree of spiritual immaturity. And James is saying that at the moment they've learned to control those things by yielding to the Spirit, They are probably or most certainly someone whose life has started to conform on all other levels as well. It's like the last thing we give. So if we are the horse and the Holy Spirit is the rider, we let him have control over our tongue. And that's a a sign that we've led. We've been led into a Christ like life. Now, the second example of the ship extends from the first, but then goes a step further. A ship, James says, on the open waters will face any number of challenges and trials usually in the form of storms, things that can harm the ship. But as long as the captain has control of that rudder, which is a very small part of the vessel overall when you think about it, nonetheless, that's enough that that captain can guide the ship safely through those strong waters, through those strong winds. And there's an obvious corollary here or or opposite rule here. 
If the captain doesn't have control of the rudder, the ship is destined to shipwreck at some point, right? At some point, without the control there, the ship is going to be tossed and blown and eventually into the rocks. Clearly, we are the ship here, as we were the horse earlier. And the captain, again, is the Spirit of God living in us and seeking to direct us into godly living. And the rudder is the tongue again, the speech of the, of the person. If our captain gains control of our tongue, he has the opportunity to guide us safely through any number of difficulties and trials and tests in our life. He will get us to safe waters, so to speak. But if our rudder remains outside the Spirit's control, then we would face spiritual shipwreck eventually. Paul, interestingly, uses this same analogy when he alludes to the problems of someone who is not listening to the Spirit in the area of speech in one of his letters to Timothy, in the first letter he wrote to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 18. Listen to this. He says, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you would fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So you have these two people who apparently couldn't discipline their tongues and maintain a good conscience, which just means to maintain a good testimony, a good witness. They couldn't do it. And what was their offense, Paul says? Their offense was blaspheming, the tongue again. And he says, because of their blaspheming, Paul called them shipwrecked in regard to their faith. And he's talking about the the ultimate outcome of a life of faith, that they were shipwrecked in that regard. It didn't profit them anything. They, their, their life came to an unprofitable end because they had this immaturity of blaspheming in some context, and that was a shipwrecked faith. So James in verse 5, he summarizes, he said, the tongue is a small part of the body. It can boast or, or lay claim to great power in our lives, either for good or for bad, but not only does it have great saving power in the way it confesses Christ and brings us into salvation, but it can be negative as well. It can bring us to shipwreck if we don't give it over to the master. It's just that simple. Now, the question comes, well, if I simply control my speech, does that mean it's going to fix all the other problems in my life? If I just stop swearing, will that mean I automatically stop lusting, for example, or whatever other sins somebody may be prone to? Well, it doesn't work quite that way. James isn't proposing cause and effect in that sense. What he's proposing is more correlation. If you are of the kind to be given over to the Spirit in your speech, if you've reached the point where you are able to do that, then he's saying, by correlation, you will have already addressed these other issues in your life. You cannot be the kind of person who is giving in to sin left and right, while at the same time maintaining perfect godly discipline in your speech. Those two just never happen that way. It's just not possible. It's like dropping buttered bread and having it land with the butter on the side up. It just doesn't happen. It's just not possible. You can talk about it in the theoretical sense, but I defy you to ever see it really happen in real life. And he says through that a third analogy there at the very end of verse 5, he emphasizes this idea that it can burn us if we're not careful. And he talks about a small flame can burn down a whole forest. We know that, understand that analogy, right? One match is enough to burn down a forest. He's using it from that point of view. But it's in the sense of the dominion of the enemy impressing itself upon our life and the choices and the decisions we make and dragging us down to his level 
Again, we're not talking about our eternal destiny. We're not talking about going to hell. We're talking about the influence of that of that place and of the enemy and all that he represents coming to bear on our life because we don't let the spirit take control and we don't get a grasp on spiritual maturity. So that leads him to his second point. If his first point is the tongue is the key to spiritual maturity, his second point is that as small as the tongue is, man is not capable of controlling it himself in his own power. Verse 6, he says, And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. So our tongues here represent the very world of sin, he says, of hell itself. If you want to see what is a manifestation of evil in your own life, just look at your own tongue, he's suggesting. Then in verse 6, James says that our sinful speech is something that defiles the entire body. And like a rudder, it can set our life on a course of evil in one form or another. Notice at the verse, end of verse 6, he says a tongue can set our life on a course that itself is set on fire by hell. What he's saying is essentially the same thing Peter says in his first letter. To make it clear what he's saying, First Peter 5, 8, Peter says, Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour It's in this same sense here that James is speaking, that the devil, or as James calls him, hell, just talking about it symbolically, all that he represents, hell, can set our life on fire in the sense that it can set us on a course that brings our lives to a disastrous end. It's like giving the enemy the keys to your house and in doing so, allowing him to come in and and cause a wreck of things. And in our body or in our life, if our tongue is given over to the evil inclinations that we have, the enemy will put that to great use and set our life on fire, so to speak. Set it on a course to destruction. The enemy takes advantage of our weaknesses, driving our Christian witness and our testimony into oblivion. And James is saying that a Christian cannot tame this in their own power. It cannot be tamed by man's own efforts. Or in more practical terms, I could say it this way. You're not finding the answer in a self-help book. Where those answers are found is in the God help book, which is the Bible, God's word. Only God's word with the spirit, using it as the sword of the spirit to to cut us to the quick, to really show us our sin and show us our problems and give us the better way. That process brings us to spiritual maturity and tames our flesh, including ultimately our tongue. I love the fact that he brings in the animal kingdom because of the way he chooses to do it. He gives you four categories, gives us four categories of animals. The English in the NASB, which I read from, doesn't treat them quite right, and I'll show you why. The first two are fine. Beasts, birds, those are, those are good. The third one in my version says reptiles, but that's not really the right word for the Greek. The Greek's word there is herpeton, and herpeton is from the Greek root word herpo. Herpo means to creep. Herpeton are creeping things which this translation for some reason chose to turn into reptiles. The King James turns it into serpents. But in reality, the literal term is creeping things or creeping. Well, this goes back to Genesis chapter 1. Do you remember when God created all the animals in chapter 1 of Genesis? He lays out four categories of animals within the kingdom. He names beasts, birds, creeping things, and the creatures of the sea. 
James echoes exactly those same four here. Why is he giving it in that way? Well, he's bringing us back to chapter one of Genesis intentionally to remind us of something God did in that chapter. God commanded Adam in that chapter to subdue the the animal kingdom. And he specifically gave him those four categories of animals that would be under Adam's dominion. Adam would have, by God's authority, the power to subdue those animals. And of course, our own experience confirms this every day. I mean, there are moments when a wild animal will attack someone. But in general terms, mankind generally does whatever we wish with the animal kingdom. There's no animal on earth that cannot be controlled one way or another by men. Whether tamed or simply a wild animal who's controlled, we have the means and the knowledge to do exactly what God has asked us to do. Though my family can't seem to control our poodle, but the tongue on the other hand cannot be controlled by men. We can't subdue it, James says, in any way comparable to the way we control animals. We may want to, we may think we can, but sooner or later it reexerts itself, right? It takes control again, and when it does, it shows us our weakness. I remember when I first became a Christian, I, before I knew the Lord, I was someone who would swear. I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't a sailor, but I had a, a mouth that would show itself once in a while. And then I became a Christian, and no one ever took me aside and said, Stephen, Christians don't swear. I can honestly say I don't ever remember that conversation happening in my walk. And probably better that it didn't. Because had it happened that way, I probably would have felt like somebody was laying a rule on me. And if I tried to keep it, it would have been strictly because I was trying to make that person happy. Which never would have been anything that could work in the long term, right? But rather, what happened was, the sanctifying work of the Spirit began to convict me such that when I said something I shouldn't say... Where before I, I might have felt good about it, it might have made me feel like a man or feel like a tough guy or feel like I'm impressing someone. I don't know, whatever I thought. Now when I did it, I just felt bad. It just didn't feel good anymore. It just felt wrong. Not because someone told me. It just did. I used to compare it to sticking myself with a stick in the eye. Every time you do it, it hurts. So you're going to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Or at least you should. And I just stopped swearing after a while. I'm not saying I don't fall back in a moment. But the point is, why am I different now than I was then? Because God, through a sanctifying process, began to show me why I don't want to do it. It became an internal change, a desire change. That's what he means when he says he gives us the desires of our heart. It doesn't mean he gives us what we want. He says he gives us a new desire so that what we want is what he wants. So my desire before had been to swear. Now my desire was not to swear. The only answer for why is the spirit. But that's... That's a measure of change. It's a sign of maturing. It's a, it's a work of the Spirit. It's not a work of our flesh. And we have to recognize that God gave us the power to subdue animals for his sovereign purposes. But he has not given us the power to subdue our own tongues by our own work. He gives it to us through a new way, through a better way, through the work of the Spirit in our hearts in the new covenant. And we have a choice to yield to that work or to frustrate or grieve the Spirit by denying it. And I have seen that. I have seen Christians who, I guess, for some reason have decided they feel more relevant to the culture, or they can, they can somehow appeal more broadly to people who don't know the Lord, and so they try to put on airs as if they were one of those people, and, and by that I mean they swear like them, they, they think and dress like them, they watch the same movies, and, and the principle is I want to be like them so that I can appeal to them for the sake of the gospel. But, but Scripture tells us that that's not how people come to know the Lord. They don't come to know the Lord because we remind them of themselves. They come to know the Lord because we remind them of Christ, and the conviction draws them to repentance. And James is saying that God has purposefully, I would argue, not awarded us 
the subduing control over our own tongues because it is to his glory that we yield to his work in that regard rather than we take it upon ourselves as our own. And that's just one aspect, right? Our entire walk of sanctification is a yielding to the spirit. But then again, the tongue seems to be the pinnacle, the piece of the puzzle that represents arriving at spiritual maturity. And when we are to be doers of the word, not just hearers, it means to do by conforming our lives to what we learn, yielding to the spirit as he takes authority in our life. And now finally, in chapter three, James challenges us not to be content with an untamed tongue. So if he opened the chapter with telling us that the tongue is the key, then he moved to reminding us that it is not something we can control. It must be something God works in us. Then lastly, he is going to make it clear it is an important goal that we mature, that we seek this change. In verse 9, he says, with it, meaning with our tongues or mouths, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. As for those who claim faith in Christ and desire to serve him and to witness about him to others, at one moment we bless his name with our tongues, James says, and then at another moment we curse men who are made in his image. Cursing here doesn't just mean curse words. I know I've made that example from myself a moment ago, but think of it more broadly here. It's any expression of hatred or condemnation or slander against someone else, speaking ill about someone else. We're talking about hateful or ungodly speech in general. So back, it's, it's really going back to the principle of James chapter 2, verse 10. That's a good verse to memorize, by the way. James verse 10 of chapter 2. If you violate one law, you violate them all. That's James 2.10. It's in that same vein he's saying here, though we bless God in one moment, we come here, let's say, on a Sunday and we do all the blessing. We, we pray, we worship in song, we talk about God's word. That's all in, in the context of blessing God with our mouths. And then we walk out and say an ill word against our neighbor, or our friend or our mother or somebody else. He's saying that cursing of your mouth, that speaking ill, just invalidated all that prior speech that was blessing. He says one mouth can't do both in the same way that you can't violate one law and keep another one and claim to be keeping the law. So if you're truly going to call yourself a man or woman of God who is controlled in their speech, you can't give way to this on an occasional basis and just say, well, I made up for it by speaking will uh, good things on an earlier moment. It's not like some kind of a mathematical equation. It's an all or none proposition. He uses these uh, classic comparisons. He says, you know, in verse 10, these things ought not to be this way. It is not good that we are this way. It is not where we want to stay. And he uses a comparison that's similar to the one Jesus himself makes in the Gospels about about the fruit of a tree being a measure of that tree or a reflection on that tree or in the case of water, a reflection on the quality of the source. A good a fountain of water cannot produce both good and bad water. Just doesn't happen. It's one or the other. And a plant can't produce a fruit other than the kind intended. So In light of how those are used in in our lives as Christians, he's saying we are new creatures in Christ. We're born again by the spirit. We're someone who has been made new in Christ for the purpose of bearing fruit and glory to God. That's our role now. That's our purpose. When we allow our tongue to remain untamed, we give into that flesh. We are failing to live up to our eternal purpose. 
What we are reflecting is not the new creature, we're reflecting the old man. And while spiritually the old has been put to death, and there is only the new, in physical terms, our body is still here hanging around for a while, and it still has the potential to produce old man-like behaviors. And when we allow that to dominate, our tongue becomes a source for these kinds of things, these bad things, these cursings he talks about. We are not giving the fruit of our faith, we are giving the fruit of our old nature. And you can't have it both ways. You can't call yourself a mature Christian and live in both worlds. We can't. I think our very reason for being saved is unmet in God's view so long as our tongue and then the rest of the body with it remains outside the Spirit's control. We haven't fulfilled any of the purposes God may have set forth for our salvation. And we know that in glorification, when God brings us home and in a new body, we will one day bring forth nothing but fresh water. But he has called us now to advance that goal, to move in that direction. And he has given us the means to do it through the Spirit. Sometimes I think the oldest advice is the best. What did our mothers used to say? If you can't say something nice about somebody, don't say anything at all. And for some people, that would be a very silent life, wouldn't it? James in chapter 1, verse 19, when we were back in chapter 1, he said it this way. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Father, as the one who has done most of the speaking here this morning, Father, I pray that as the scriptures have required that my speech, Father, has been a blessing, not a cursing, has been a a reflection of your word and not a reflection of my own thoughts. And, Father, where I have misspoken, I know, Father, that you have the power to take those thoughts away, even after they've been heard, and replace them with the truth. And so I've put that before you now, Father, that my teaching where it has erred has been corrected in, in the hearts of those who've heard. And all of that is to your glory. And I also pray, Father, that we have all heard this word internally, that there's been, there's been recognition on everyone's part, Father, of where we can do better, so that we would be doers of the word. Whether we must now in our hearts commit to cease from inappropriate speech in one form or another, boasting or gossiping or cursing, or you know what it is, Father, and you're placing that on our hearts now, and that's all that matters. I ask, Father, that you would, you would also give us the courage to yield to the Spirit, to hear those corrections, taking them to heart, living according to them. For we know, Father, based on the promises of your word this morning, that if we are yielding to you in that area of our life, then we have made strides in many others as well. We have gained a, a degree of self-control that pleases you, and, and we have become useful to you in that regard. Let us be those kinds of Christians. How we long, Father, to hear not only from our brothers and sisters, but ultimately from, from our Lord that we are pleasing you, that we are a reflection of Christ. What an honor it would be to hear those words, Father. And not in pride, and not because we decide we deserve it, but because your glory, Father, your grace shines from us and others see it, and it is evident that you are the one doing the work. We just pray for that opportunity in our lives. And Father, I do pray for Oak Hill Bible Church as well, because I am confident, Father, and I trust in your word that if if your sons and daughters are seeking your face and are hoping, Father, in, in every area of their life to conform to Christ and yield to the Spirit, that that will delight you and you will, you will be encouraged, Father, to bring others to, to see and to know what we know. 
that you would be pleased, Father, to use us in that regard. I trust, Father, that that is the, the natural work and the result of the Spirit in a body that is yielding to Him. So I pray for that opportunity, Father. We want to serve. We want to serve in spirit and in truth, and we want to do it to your glory as your ambassadors, Father. We ask that you would expand our mission in that regard. Send us away from here, Father, with an opportunity to influence someone this week in a way, Father, that helps them know what we know. And uh, bring us all back, Father. Bring back the the many who who were absent this morning and, and bring them back safely. Let us continue in a fellowship here that is so special to so many people. We pray all these things, trusting in your word as we do each week. And in Jesus' name, amen.